Hey there, welcome back to the Boy and Island podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Hurst. I'm an artist, musician, and a writer. This is a multi-episodic journey exploring the creative process behind my forthcoming book, Boy and Island, which dissects, reassembles, and re-examines my experiences as a child survivor of the accident at Three Mile Island Nuclear Power Plant. Now, in the wake of a handful of pivotal things that have happened in my life uh, throughout the last uh, several months, we're going to take a willful uh, diversion from our story flow of the podcast. We're transitioning out of episode two, which had, I think, five parts. We basically went the whole way from back at the Big Bang um, all the way till the other Big Bang, which was the dropping of the atomic bombs at Nagasaki and Hiroshima, middle of last century, that ended the World War II. And that's where we left off in terms of the historical flow in relationship to the Boy and Island story. And we are going to pick that thread up in a big way here coming up, where we start talking about the events of the Cold War, because guess what? The Cold War is on again with uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Last episode, I wanted to take a some time to introduce my mom to the podcast listeners. So I wanted her to talk about primarily um, some of the most important aspects of her experience going through the Three Mile Island debacle on a personal level. And she did such a great job, and it was such a great interview. And there'll be many more of those in the future. If you haven't listened to that one, go back and check that out. And this one here is going to be a diversion that gets you up to speed with some things that have been going on with my dad, Jim. Uh, him and my mom are, of course, central uh, characters in the Boy on Island story, them as my caregivers going through the whole uh, Three Mile Island experience. And I'm so lucky and proud of the way that they handled themselves throughout what was, at that time, a unprecedented situation. Because when you can't depend on the official narrative of an event, you've got to seek out truth in your own way. And you have to do it at all costs. And it's not easy. And my parents really were great role models for that. I literally watched them uh, claw tooth and nail to try to get the truth when the truth seemed to be hiding TMI officials and the nuclear power industry seemed to want the location of the truth to be as elusive as possible. And we have to make sure that above all, this is not a trend that continues into this next phase of uh, the nuclear industry. We have to make sure that we're learning from the mistakes of the past. So this technology that does have wonderful potential is handled with the care and integrity that it deserves. So now let's check in with my dad. So you want to tell everybody what's been going on with you the last few months? Well, it started out in the middle of February with a uh, heart operation. Uh, 
it had some complications, and it had to, what was originally going to be just something through the uh, veins ended up having to be uh, open heart. And then there was some problems there that required, uh, what were the things called? And then you got your, uh, your, your trach? That you... was the trach, yeah. Because your lung collapsed. Well, they actually had to, they were thinking they could do just one trach, but they had to do two. And uh, then I had to stay at uh, the, the condition I went into where I wasn't able to communicate. A coma. Coma, yeah, I was in a coma for five days. And then uh, we had to get the uh, creek uh, taken out. Uh, they actually used two, as I said before, and they were able to take the one out, but the other one was going to require a little bit different uh, approach. So we started looking around for uh, a, home, a home or a hospital that could take out the, the creek. And, uh, it was hard to find, and we finally found... Uh, that's, when you, that's when you went to the one in Ambler. No, I think that's when I went to... Was it Asian? Well, maybe it was. And, and then that didn't work out. Yeah, then we came back. And then you went back to Hershey Med because that didn't work out. So you went back there to get some more... to build up your strength and to... Well, that was actually at uh, the other... What was it, Hershey? What was that? The Encompass one? No. Yeah. yeah that, that was the second rehab facility that you were in. But then they released me from there, and I went home, and it lasted two days till I started having uh, terrible pain in my front and right side pain. And... Uh, Two days later, I was back in the hospital with a uh, gallbladder problem, and I'm still not over that. Uh, we're not sure. They, they tried to uh, drain all the bile and the poisons that were in it. They tried to take those out first, and it seemed like it was going all right, but I don't think they're sure of whether they <coughs> The idea was to take all the poisons and bile and stuff out and then remove the, the uh, gallbladder. But it, it may not work out that way. They may have to right. just take it out. And now where are you now? You're out of the hospital and you're, you're at the Middletown home? Yes. Uh, where we live. Now, I know that's hard to listen to, but I wanted to go straight to the source for this so you can hear and feel the strain that my father has been through over the last six months or so. All this on top of his advanced Parkinson's disease and has been punishing on his body and his soul. Although it's been tough to witness, uh, my wife Shona and I are glad to be close by to be able to help by visiting him in the hospital and the rehab facilities taking him to doctor's appointments, helping my mom organize his extensive daily medication regimen, among other things. It's been a cruel coincidence that 
since I moved back to central Pennsylvania, where I'm originally from, after being in New York City for 20-some years, it seemed oddly timed with a period of ongoing intense health problems for my dad. My wife and I strategically decided to relocate here with the intention of spending more time with my parents in this stage of their lives after being away for so long, but we had no idea that things would get this serious this fast. It's strange when you think you are mentally and emotionally prepared for such circumstances like this, when it's actually facing you, it's a shock to the system. Like Mike Tyson quote, that everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. And one of the many eye-opening aspects of this situation has been observing many of my least desirable character traits come out to play, one of which is an overwhelming desire to feel like I'm having a positive impact on things and a kind of overcompensating for the fact that I'm largely powerless to change the rampant physical chaos my dad's body is being subjected to. Another would be second-guessing my mom's judgment in regards to my dad's condition. As if anyone, often even including the doctors, could possibly have a better intuitive feel for my dad's condition, considering her steadfast and unfailing total commitment to him day in and day out. Of course, this pisses my mom off, rightfully so. You know the scenario. The jumped-up, know-it-all son breezes in from the big city with plans for everyone. Concurrent with all this, I've developed some health problems of my own. Most of it stress-related, triggered by worrying about my dad, but also from moving from New York City to what feels like an environment on a permanent siesta. And I'm now on a blood pressure medication that regulates my heart rate and makes my hypertension feel more stabilized. But the real essential activity that has helped me maintain and even keel has been walking. So as I walk, I realize what I'm actually doing is continuously trying to get in a state of unthinking or at least trying to unpack all the things that are giving me problems. And they don't go away completely. They can never go away completely. But what you can do is kind of recognize that they're there and almost give them in a way due diligence by completely recognizing what what these things are that are bothering you and it's almost like once it's out in the open and I can kind of see it for what it is and it, it, it doesn't feel as bad and it uh, seems more manageable and also as the walk gets more strenuous and difficult you really don't have time to dwell on any negative thoughts you have to really maintain a sense of forward uh, motion and it's very difficult to do that if you're hung up on something it's exactly like it used to be for me when I was in 
in junior high, high school, I would jog all the time, sometimes really far. And I would, if I would get my breathing right, and then my mind would start to work in a totally different way. And I could let sort of things creep in that were, it felt like they were unlocking things in my mind. Things that were probably there, but that I couldn't access. And I was finding out a way to access stuff. I'm looking at recognize me and it confirms me where I am for for another day that's how it works and you then then occasionally you get thrown wonderful surprises like yesterday there was an amazing standoff between a crow and a fox I'd never seen that before the the crow was literally chasing this fox right down a, a long street and the fox, in panic, leapt up a vertical wall and got to the top. And then his little head sort of stuck over the top to see if the crow had gone. And the crow was perched in a tree above and was kind of dive-bombing it. Uh, I mean, presumably an argument over food had started this. 
but it was it was like walking into one of those fables, like walking into a French fable with the fox and the crow. Yeah. Uh, and yet, you know, with the light and the way these things were behaving, there was that sense of another city, you know, not the ordinary city of people wedded to their phones, sort of tramping along at high speed and shouting about offices and debts and money and mothers and whatever, that there is this other thing that's going on all the time. That's the poet Ian Sinclair talking about the unexpected, virtuous, incredible things that you see when you're walking that reveal themselves to you. And you do start to re really realize that this stuff is going on all the time. And by you finding your circuitous way to these happenstance things, you, you start to really realize that you're tuned in to something if you allow yourself to be tuned in to something. Our intention is to affirm this life, not to bring order out of chaos, nor to suggest improvements in creation, but simply to wake up to the very life we're living, which is so excellent once one gets one's mind and one's desires out of its way and lets it act of its own accord. That's composer and artist John Cage, famous for his composition titled 433 from 1952, originally quote-unquote performed by David Tudor, where he would come up to a piano, sit, and just sit for four minutes and 33 seconds. And any accompanying sound that would happen during the non-performance would be the content of the piece. Now, the spirit of this kind of activity wouldn't have been possible, perhaps, if it wouldn't have been initiated to some degree by Zen Buddhist principles that Cage was intimate with, specifically the idea of indeterminacy or chance operations. And once you become familiar with these principles, they can really add a kind of buoyancy to everyday experiences, walking being one of them. And in my walks, one of the things that I would ponder most would be the nature of errors, because my father's illness or run of illnesses recently has been as a result of an error. His routine AFib ablation surgery, which has such a low percentage of complications, was actually the culprit of sending him in a kind of a downward spiral into a series of health problems. And of course, Three Mile Island and the whole accident that happened there was a combination of human error and mechanical error. And we could dwell on such errors and feel victimized by these occurrences, or we can, as my mother and father did, and as I'm doing with the Boy and Island Project, try to find a way, although it's very difficult at times, to call some kind of inspiration out of misfortune. It, a lot of the times, to really move forward, it's the only option. Of course, to err is human, but our response to our errors is really when you see our true colors. 
But how do we transcend the disappointment embedded within our errors? Often our misreadings and misinterpretations reveal a kind of mystic truth previously hidden to us. Honor thy error as a hidden intention, because so often I noticed listening to recordings of, of gigs and so on, it was sometimes the mistakes were really interesting, yeah. but you don't notice it in the anxiety of the moment. So, so I, I just made that rule and I used to put it up on the mixing yeah. desk, honor thy error as a hidden intention just to remind myself that if something went wrong, don't immediately chuck it out. Just for a moment, give it a listen and see whether yeah. something, there's something interesting about it. That's artist Brian Eno, whose profound and inspiring relationship to mining the fertility of errors resulted in his invention of a deck of cards for applying what he described as oblique strategies. Oblique strategies, discover the recipes you are using and abandon them. There you go. Do you still use these cards when you're yeah. working? Yeah, I do. They're, they're useful. And here's musician Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth discussing his reverence for the glory of errors. The Kingsman's version is just so interesting because it's, it, is, it does sound like it's done in one take and it's so raw and so minimal to the point like when they come back into the third verse after this kind of stinging lead guitar that the, the singer... Um, comes in at the wrong place you know and then he, he and then and then he he stops and then he comes in on the right place but the fact that they kept it on the record i mean it's one of the great it's one of the great sort of like out of sight errors you know you know brian eno always sort of talked about like how you know how mistakes have as much value as intentions and it's just like well <laughs> i mean louis louis is proof of that it's like that mistake is so jarring but so cool that was a lesson in how to make mistakes work for you, or just allowing them to sort of retain their, you know, their, their magic. These imperfections littered throughout Louie Louie are what is in fact the primary treasured character trait of the song. Its perfect imperfectness becomes a guiding light for Rausch's instinct-based creativity. Now what you just heard in the background was actually the Iggy Pop and the Stooges version of Louie Louie. And I wanted to include that there because it, there's nobody better at being perfectly imperfect than Iggy Pop. Matter of fact, Iggy Pop was so enamored with Louie Louie and the spirit of it that he got uh, Don Gallucci, who actually played piano in the original version of Louie Louie, to produce their second album, Funhouse. This is a song by the band Nirvana called Moist Vagina, a B-side from 1993, purportedly titled by Kurt Cobain when he held his tongue out and said marijuana, that it sounded like Moist Vagina, or vice versa.
course, there's no way to confirm or deny that this was the motivation behind the song, but it's as good as a wordplay device as any. Anyways. B-1000 sounds like Pete Townsend. That's Toby and Bob from the band Guided by Voices, who titled their 1994 album B-1000 after hearing it when they held their tongue while saying Pete Townsend, a kind of elliptical but sweet tribute to the leader of The Who. And it actually works. Here, I'll show you. It actually works. This is Guided by Voices again with their song Maxwell Jump is Dead from their 1996 album Tonics and Twisted Chasers. Now, you think you've heard Maxwell jump from somewhere before? I think you have. Now, when I was a kid growing up and this song would be on the radio, everybody in the car uh, would say, Maxwell jump. And we just thought it was maybe, you know, just the kids in our neighborhood or maybe people in our town. But when an idea, however outlandish, enters into the collective subconscious apparatus, things can get very, very interesting. There was no sort of particular security. And one of our assistants told us that there was this strange guy that was just staying in our gardens almost every night. John always felt responsible for these people because they were the result of his songs. That's how he felt. Don't confuse the songs with your own life. I mean, they might have relevance to your own life, but a lot of things do. So we met, you know, I'm just a guy, man, who writes songs. Yeah, I I figured that if we met, I'd know just by reading them. But know what? It all fits. Anything fits, you know, if you're tripping off on some trip. Anything fits, you know. Look, when you say, boy, you're going to carry that weight for a long time. Did, that was just... That's Paul saying that. Yeah. Paul saying that? Well, that belongs to all of us. He's thinking about all of us. Remember that one, um, you can radiate everything you want, you can penetrate anywhere you go? Yeah. I was just having fun with words. It was an, literally a nonsense song, you know. I mean, Dylan does that. Anybody does it, you know. They just take words and you have you stick them together and, and see if they have any meaning. Some of them do, some of them don't. See, that last album of mine was me coming out of my dream. You can last your whole life on that dream, you know? And then it's all over. You weren't thinking of anyone in particular when you were singing all that. How could I be? How could I be thinking of you, man? Well, I don't know, maybe I don't care me, but it's all, it's all somebody. I'm know? thinking about me or at best Yoko, if it's a love song. I'm saying, you know, I had a good shit today and uh, this is what I thought this morning and, uh, you know, and, or I love you, Yoko, whatever. I'm singing about me and my life, you know, and if it's relevant for other people's lives, that's all right. That's a clip from the 1988 documentary Imagine John Lennon that features the infamous confrontation between John, Yoko, and drifter Kurt Claudio, who was squatting on the grounds of the Lennon's estate for days in the early 70s after the breakup of the Beatles. 
This interaction perfectly sums up the kind of cumulative effect that the Beatles had on the more obsessive folds of popular culture, where the outsized nature of the group's influence grew even larger after their split in 1970, causing some fans, out of perhaps disbelief or denial, or like John said, confusing the lyrics with your own life, reading into their every utterance, forwards, backwards, and otherwise, spawning conspiracies over Paul McCartney being dead, and so on and so forth. Back out in 67, you go over to see the Grateful Dead, and they're Man, your mind's going to be in the miles an hour, man. I'm saying, ooh. You know, that's what I call confusion. That's helter-skelter, you know. I mean, how do I have to get, appear like I'm some kind of maniac because uh, I can hear something that the music says? You know, when the music said song, well, over the rainbow, you know, in other words, yeah, I'm still there over the rainbow. In a nutshell, uh, Manson believed that uh, there was going to be a race war, and he wanted to incite this race war because he had convinced his followers that through messages he received from the Beatles' White Album, from their lyrics, from biblical uh, Old Testament prophecies, that um, he had been told that he was going to be the savior of the world. And once the race war started, he would hide his family in a bottomless pit in the desert. And when the race war ended, with the blacks winning, the blacks would be framed for, for murders. Um, they would, uh, the Manson family would emerge and repopulate the planet with their perfect op offspring and dominate the blacks. There was talk of that. There was a philosophy of helter-skelter at the Spawn Ranch, where, where they lived in 68 and 69, that Manson would discuss. Back there a bit, you heard the mad scatting of none other than Charles Manson. And then a clip from Tom O'Neill, who wrote the 2019 book, Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the secret history of the 60s. But there's a big difference between exploring the hidden intentions within errors for creative purposes and hiding your intentions inside a racist, murderous ideology based on an erroneous or misinterpreted message supposedly deciphered by Manson in a song proselytized unto his acid-drenched followers, guaranteed salvation and righteous impunity that they committed to him completely, resulting in a series of murders in and around the Hollywood Hills in the summer of 1969. That's the British band Judas Priest with the song Better By You, Better Than Me from their 1978 album Stained Class. This song, originally written by Spooky Tooth in 1969, was the topic of a subliminal message trial in 1990 
After two teens from Nevada acted out a suicide pact in which Ray Belknap died and James Vance survived but was severely disfigured. The suicide pact was, they claimed, influenced by hidden messages they had heard in the lyrics of the song. Judas Priest was eventually cleared of all charges. The trial and its impact is covered extensively in the 1992 documentary, Dream Deceivers, directed by David Van Taylor. Heavy metal goes on trial. Why do you think Raymond committed suicide that day? I think he was affected by the music he was listening to. Are there subliminal duets on the Better By You, Better Than Me song? Absolutely not. I have a distinct and vivid memory from that early to mid-80s period when the group of boys in my neighborhood crouching around a turntable in Bob Burkett's basement manually playing backwards albums by Queen, Led Zeppelin, and even the Eagles Hotel California by Candlelight with endless lip-staining Hawaiian punch and Middlesworth barbecue chips Convincing each other, we heard something vaguely demonic inside the record grooves. These abstract smears of sonic sorcery providing an indispensable soundtrack to the satanic panic phenomenon that was sweeping tiny American cow towns like mine during this period. But ultimately, there is a steadfast and omnipresent undercurrent that lurks amidst our daily activities void of mystical gleanings or sinister interpretations. It's just a stone-cold mistake, no matter how you slice it. Little roller up along first, behind the bag! It gets through Buckner! Here comes Knight, and the Mets win it! My family, Maman, Papa, Jeff, homage vous adore. Matt Pluff, you kicked this off. And Damien Chazelle, we're standing on your shoulders. We lost, by the way, but, you know. I'm sorry. No. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Moonlight won. This is not a joke. This is not a joke. I'm afraid they read the wrong thing. This is not a joke. Moonlight has won Best Picture. Moonlight. Best Picture. unfortunate what happened personally I blame Steve Harvey for this okay folks uh, th there's I have to apologize the first Runner-up is Colombia. <laughs> Miss Universe 2015 is Philippines. It's four o'clock on August 13th. I'm currently at in no man's land, which is basically the middle of my walk 
to my sister Lee's house. We're going there for a birthday party for my dad, whose birthday was actually yesterday. Uh, but we weren't able to meet up, so we're going to meet up today. So I figured it'd be a good excuse to take one of my walks to my sister's. about 13 miles, maybe 14 miles. It's all about halfway. And this got blue skies, about 90 degrees. Got some turkey buzzards circling above. Got the old uh, steel mill to the right. The old rail, railroad trail. Walking by the slag heap place now up the hill. Gonna enter into High Spire here in about 15 minutes. Ready? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Jen. Happy birthday to you, Jen. Hey, that's it for this episode of the Boy and Island podcast. Thank you so much for hanging out. For more information on this project, please go to boyandisland.com. Take care. I'll see you soon. Goodbye.